So this semester, Upper House has been creating events within the theme of being a good neighbor. And a topic that quickly rose to the surface of that theme is the topic of forgiveness. As I'm sure you've experienced, if you have interacted with humans for any length of time, you will come to the point of needing to forgive or be forgiven. And at Upper House, we like to ask questions of the soul. And forgiveness is a question of the soul. It's messy, nonlinear. It's often an ongoing process. I mean, it hurts and it requires sacrifice. And if we're being honest, it will sometimes just feel like it's a direct contradiction to justice. Yet whether you follow the Christian tradition or not, forgiveness is still listed as a noteworthy step toward healing relationships. So if that's true, how do we do it? And that's what we get to talk about today. So it is my privilege to introduce you to the brilliant minds who will lead us through this conversation. Our facilitator is Dr. Christine Jeske, author and professor of cultural anthropology at Wheaton College. She has worked in microfinance, refugee settlement, and community development, all coming together in her aim um, to help people walk humbly in areas of injustice. Her current research considers how Christians envision and seek racial justice, a sphere in which forgiveness comes into view. Dr. Christine Jeske has taught around the world, including Nicaragua, Northwest China, and South Africa. She's the author of three books and is working on a fourth, and she holds degrees from Eastern University and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And our speaker is Dr. Miroslav Wolf, the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale and founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. He is the author of numerous books, one of which is particularly related to today's conversation called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace, which was the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lenten book of 2006, so it's a big deal. Uh, Professor Wolf has been involved in interfaith dialogues and was an active participant in the Global Agenda Council on Values of the World Economic Forum. A native of Croatia, he regularly teaches and lectures in Central and Eastern Europe, Asia, and across North America. Professor Wolf is a fellow at Berkeley College. He holds degrees from Evangelical Theological Faculty, Fuller Theological Seminary, and the University of Tübingen in Germany. If you'd please join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Well, it is fun to be here. Uh, I was telling Miroslav beforehand that uh, my first awareness of you was when I was living in South Africa. I had a pastor who would quote you from time to time. And then I moved back to the United States and I did a dissertation on work and the good life. And I discovered your dissertation was on work. And then he wrote on the good life. And then I switched my research topics to things that had hope and grace coming up and discovered Lo and behold, he's written on hope and on grace. Uh, and the other day, somebody heard that I was doing this event and they said, oh, you must love Miroslav Wolf because he wrote Exclusion and Embrace. And I said, no, I haven't read that. And I looked at that book and I was like, this is exactly what I teach also. So it's kind of like every time I turn around, there's Miroslav Wolf who's gotten there just before I have. So <laughs> I'm excited to be in the same room at the same time with you. It's always a time. First thing you do, It's all good. Um, so Miroslav, uh, I understand that this topic of forgiveness has been something that you've thought about a lot from uh, maybe infancy, in that it was a big part of your family story as well, uh, and something that you saw modeled by your parents. I wonder if you'd uh, start us off today with some of the story of how forgiveness played out in your family growing up. Yeah, this was an, um, a, a kind of families sometimes have, and certainly our family had a uh, uh, a defining event. Um, it was rarely uh, explicitly there, but it was always there. And the death was, and and the event was um, a death of mm -hmm. my brother when I was one years old, and he was five, who was um, playing what we, what he describes as his soldiers. Mm. We lived at a time in um, Osijek and very close to uh, um, army barracks, uh, and kids were roaming at large at that time, and he loved to play with uh, with, uh, with soldiers, young 
kids. There were 18, 19, um, and were bored. Um, and so he was once put on a horse drone cart. Um, and when they were going under, um, uh, over, um, under a, a kind of door frame, large door. No, it's not door. What do you call those huge doors in English? Like an arch? Uh, like arch, uh, yeah. For it, um, his head got to the side and squeezed between the, uh, one of the po door posts, uh, and the carriage. And, um, he died in my father's arms as he was trying to carry him, uh, uh to the first place where he could be, uh, possibly treated. Um, it's interesting reaction. Obviously, my parents were devastated, um, and independently of uh, one another, in reaction, they had uh, a verse came to their mind from the Bible, and this was from Ephesians five, uh, which says, "Forgive as you have been forgiven hmm. in Christ." And my mother says, and so we decided to forgive. And in fact, what I did is uh, the, the young soldier was completely devastated, uh, didn't know what to do with, uh, with himself. He, it was clearly his fault. They, they went, my father later went and traveled days worth of journey to talk to him and to speak to him about the grace of God that elevates and forgives uh, and that was uh, a kind of defining moment. That's who the Wolves are. Hmm. My mother and father, independently of each other, and that's who we were, who we were, are, who we we were. Um, and in part, that's what's behind my own interest in forgiveness, my own interest in reconciliation. Um, I discovered it as the heart of the Christian uh, faith. So what does that even mean? You know, we hear those kinds of stories and you wonder, like, does that mean is forgiveness something that you just do in your heart and it's a feeling? Uh, is it something that's one and done one day because you decided it? Or how would you define what forgiveness means? My mother said always that, that this was the hardest thing that she has ever done. Um, she described it. Everything in her was screaming for some kind of payback, some kind of maybe not even so much payback as uh, righting of the of the wrong. The wrong giving seems like it sets things off balance, and in order to balance things, something needs to be done. He somehow has to be punished. He has to pay, uh, and everything in her was screaming for some such occurrence. And yet she knew that it was the wrong th thing to hope for, to expect. The right thing was actually to forgive. And so it, it was for her. And I think that's uh, so in most of forgiving, certainly that I have done, is that there is a, there is a, a sense of resistance and there is a giving in to the uh the better thing that one does, namely forgives, and then in the middle of the night, it's waking up and saying, no, 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 this is just crazy. Uh, I cannot do it. I should not do it. It's not the right thing to, to do. And then in the morning, you wake up and uh, uh, think, what this is that happened in the middle of the night? Uh, you see better, and yet you have constant difficulty. Um, I, I kind of bringing it to completion. And that's where I realized that forgiveness actually is a less a single act than a process. And I think in introductory comments, it was mentioned, it's almost like more like a practice. It's almost like a stance in life that one goes through and attends to, that the way one works in life through sanctification in life, for those of you who are, who are Christians, kind of progress in becoming more Christ-like, that's the way one deals with a particular act of, of forgiveness. And if one expects more than that, often disappointment sets in. Um, yeah, for me, it's indication of, of, of how 
difficult sometimes the beauty of the character of human beings is of how it requires attentiveness and hard work and not letting go too easily into inclinations that we that we have Anna. and so it's, it sounds like in that process for your family it wasn't that they denied that something terrible had happened would you say that forgiveness then involves actually acknowledging how terrible and how wrong the the occurrence is or the the act that someone has done how does it simultaneously handle that awareness that something very wrong has happened and then respond with something else. Yeah, that, that is the difficulty of forgiveness because one way to deal with it is is kind of um, sometimes people people suggest and even uh, uh, Nietzsche was famous, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche in his genealogy of morality uh, was famous for, for saying that uh, the, the the famous Count Mirabeau. I've never heard of the famous guy before. I read about him in <laughs> in Nietzsche's uh, in Nietzsche's text. Uh, um, uh, but uh, but he he didn't even remember injuries. Uh, he couldn't forgive because he didn't uh, remember them even to have happened. And it was almost like you're going through a narrow narrow corridor and you bump with somebody. Uh, in somebody's shoulder, and uh, well, you just bump, no, no problem, and you just continue your life. And some people think that's how one should deal with uh, with all forms of mm. uh, forgiveness. And yet, some of them uh, involve injuries that cut very deeply uh, into lives of other people, ruin lives, and one cannot treat them uh, in this way. And so the question becomes, <clears throat> can one... One one has to name it, but when one once one has named it as a wrongdoing, then uh, the difficulty arises. Well, how do I now let go of it? Once I have named it, clearer it is named. The more dif- most more difficult it is not to let it count against the person. So my my sense of forgiveness, and that's the both of the difficulty and the miracle of it, is that forgive in forgiving we name the wrong. And at the same time, or immediately after that, not count the wrong against the wrongdoer. Kind of naming it as having happened and not counting it. Those are the two essential steps of, uh, of forgiveness. Um, and this non, not counting it against, uh, th- where does that come from? Why should I do that? Why on earth, what justifies me not counting wrongdoing uh, against someone? Uh, Or you can kind of put it the other way. Uh, From the perspective of the experience of the wrongdoer, uh, it it means the the wrongdoing kind of sticks to the wrongdoer. It's a deed that they have committed. They can't undo it. It's part of their story, part of their, their history, and forgiveness, what it does, it kind of unglues that which sticks to them and puts it to the side. And you think, wow, can you do that? Is it possible? Who can do that? Um, and that's why the, in, the, in the Christian tradition, certainly in the Hebrew tradition, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, and nobody could truly forgive except God, because to forgive means to do something with the story that actually has transpired, alter its meaning, alter how it defines the the person, um, and and that possibility uh, is. The, the big challenge of forgiveness. And that's why I think also a lot of people rebel, and I can understand rebellion against uh, forgiveness. It's treating the wrongdoing too cheaply. It's not honoring the one who has been wrong. Something I really appreciated in this book, Free of Charge, also is how you wrote about that and, and said that our ability forget to forgive is tied up in our unity with Christ. So like that bridge between only God being able to forgive and then 
how does that play out in the life of a believer in Christ? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, so so I I I, I do think that we don't have the right to forgive, mm. but we don't have an option not to forgive. <laughs> See. <laughs> that, that's how it, that's how it works out in the Christian the that's Christian that kind of realist of you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I think we don't have the option not to forgive because everything has already been forgiven. Um. So so what forgiveness forgiveness is um, incompatible with something like revenge or payback. Forgiveness, I don't think, is incompatible with discipline toward the person who has committed the wrong. As a matter of fact, I don't know how it is with uh, uh, how you treat your your child. If you have, you've treated or treat your children, uh, it seems to me that I forgive uh, uh, and uh, have a timeout or whatever other forms of disciplinary measure is uh, all of the time. So the disciplinary measure and forgiveness are perfectly compatible uh, thing. What's incompatible is retribution, payback, and forgiveness. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that retribution is what's taken away from our hands for any of the sins in the world because the sin of the world has been carried by Jesus Christ. The sin of the world has been forgiven. And that's why I think we are encouraged to forgive. Uh, That's why we, when we've—this is what I think about forgiveness. When we forgive, we participate in God's act of forgiveness. And when we refuse to forgive or when we are unable to uh, forgive, when we hesitate to forgive— we are having a hard time aligning our lives with what God has already done for that person. And that's, uh, I think, that that's what, what was implied in my, my parents' statement. Forgive as you have been forgiven. As all have been forgiven in Christ, so also you forgive in alignment with what Christ has done uh, for us. Now, I, I think that's a miracle of forgiveness. And that's the beauty of it, and that's the pain and difficulty of it. It is. And I think when you explain it that way, you realize this is, like you said, miraculous. It is so difficult. It's not something that we do lightly. And I think we were talking earlier about um, how it's maybe not as popular to forgive. I don't know if it was ever popular to forgive, but it's challenging, right? Uh, And I think... One of the things I noticed in this, too, is you said you wrote this because you had a sense of this growing gracelessness in the wider society. And, um, you know, one of the things we deal with with forgiveness is sort of interpersonal. You know, I do something wrong. You forgive me. You do something wrong. I forgive you. But um, thinking about this at a wider social scale, which is where it often touches onto my research, too, is like, how do you live this out in the public sphere at a social level, at a political level. Um, do you want to speak to how that plays out uh, across groups of people? Uh, yeah, first, let, let me make a comment about the kind of first part of your uh, of your comment. Um, did the kind of certain form of gracelessness that applies both to the larger uh, social forms of, um, of harm mm-hmm. and injury, but also at the personal uh, level. And I mean, they may, there are many reasons for it, but one of them is, uh, I've come to think, is that we have this um, kind of narrative account of who we are. And by that I mean uh, very roughly, uh, who are you? Who am I? Well, I am the sum of the things that I've done, of things that others have done to me, and how I have responded to what I've done and what others have done to me. So what I suffer, what I do, how I respond to this. And we kind of align, we tell a narrative of that, right, to ourselves. And that's who we are. Now, if you do something wrong, but you think of yourself as having narrative identity in that sense, 
how do you how do you take it away from your identity? This defines you, and it defines you in a kind of stable way. You you can any form of forgiveness means feels like a denial of who the person is. Um, maybe that might be welcome from the for for the doer, but certainly in the one who has suffered, that's not a welcome thing. We cannot deny it. So your story ideally remains what your story is, right? It's almost like uh, like everything stays on the internet, right? <laughs> and so in some ways, everything ought to stay in our memory, defining who we are. If you have that kind of account of uh, of who you are, it's very hard to think about what forgiveness might mean. But if you have a account of the self that you are constituted by God, quite apart from anything that you have done or, or suffered, then the possibility opens up for you actually to forgive others and to experience forgiveness without that being feeling like just falsifying the record. Right? If I forgive and I don't want to attend to something, if I have narrative identity, I falsify the record of a, of a life. So that's part of a reason. that There, may, there are other reasons why we find, find so difficult to forgive. And by the way, why we as a whole have an understanding of forgiveness that is very much a kind of individual person-oriented. That is to say, dealing with my resentment. That's a typical a way in which in the uh, pop psychology, Dr. Phil, I used to, when he, is he still on? I don't think he is. Some of you know, but some of you will will know him, right? He was giving all this uh, really smart, uh, quick uh, uh, advice and the way he understood forgiveness. And by the way, the way much of philosophy understands forgiveness is <clears throat> forgiveness is a mode in which we, I as a person, deal with my resentment. Uh, I deal with something that prevents me to move forward, to holds, that holds me back, holds me captive. And if I just free myself from resentment, that is then forgiveness, and then I can move forward. But that's a very person, individual-oriented account of uh, forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a social uh, event, mm. by definition, or you can put it first, interpersonal event. It happens not to a person simply, but between uh, persons. Uh, so that I, if I forgive, I don't count what's as wrong what somebody has done against me. That is to say, I'm redefining my relationship to another person, redefining uh, that person's relationship to me uh, in a sense as well. And if you see forgiveness this in this way, um, uh, that then it becomes difficult with this narrative structure. That that's why we lean toward uh, well, let's just get rid of my resentment, and that's that's all. I don't have to deal uh, with another person, um, which kind of makes it difficult um, in today's situation also to to forgive. Now that's the difficulties at an individual level. Now, the, the, the social account of forgiveness, the social forms of forgiveness, that is a very difficult uh, issue, I find. And I find that the main way in which we think about forgiveness is uh, interpersonal. And that there are analogs to thinking of forgiveness in interpersonal, one-on-one person uh, kind of way, or smaller group kind of way, and large social, political, for instance, forms of, uh, of forgiveness. And difficulty is simply because forgiveness is a kind of act of grace. But how do you get the whole group of people to act in grace toward another group of, uh, of people? You have to have collective forms of action, and collective forms of action presuppose identification of almost everyone in the collective with the act that is being done in their in their name, and that becomes a very difficult and proposition. So there are uh, analogs to that when somebody who represents a nation notwithstanding or a group notwithstanding 
um, certain disagreements within that group speaks in the name of the whole, uh, and then forgiveness may, uh, may, may happen. One more thing I want to uh, add of difficulty of forgiveness. I think part of the difficulty of forgiveness is that we have cheapened it. In the when, on the one sense, it's becoming easy then, or you just uh, forgive. That's it. Uh, that's relatively easy, even if it's certainly also difficult. But forgiveness, if forgiveness is a gift, every gift requires to be received. And if forgiveness is a gift that one person gives to another, then another person has to receive that gift. I always give example. Uh, let's say I give a, uh, I give a gift for my sister. I buy a gift for my sister, want to give it to her. I buy it, I bring it home, I put it in a nice package, I ship it to her, and it comes to her, she puts it on her, her table and doesn't want to unwrap it. She thinks, why is this brother of mine giving me a present gift now? What's he trying to do? And maybe she thinks, I'm trying to buy my way cheaply out of something that, <laughs> you know, whatever the reason she might have to say, eh, now, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> so, so you may ask, have I given her a gift? Well, from my perspective, I certainly have, right? I've done everything, both in terms of intention and action, what giving of a gift requires. But as it turns out, the gift hasn't quite reached its destination <laughs> because there were no hands to receive it. So it, it, when you play, when you play uh, whether you play American football, play, play soccer, when you throw a ball, well, you can throw a ball, but if there are no hands or feet to receive the ball, uh, well, pass hasn't occurred, right? Uh, though, though you have passed the ball uh, to another person. I think the same thing happens with forgiveness. And so if you ask, well, okay, so what are the modes of receptivity for forgiveness? What are the hands mm. that receive the gift of forgiveness? And I think there are two hands. And one of them is apology or repentance. And the other one is restitution. And when I say we have cheapened forgiveness, I mean that we have forgotten that genuine acceptance of forgiveness requires attempt at restitution. I always think about this example that Desmond Tutu gives. If you steal my bicycle and and you ask for my forgiveness and I forgive you, but you still continue to ride my bicycle. <laughs> What's up with this? <laughs> right? I mean, if that's how one construes forgiveness, right? I mean, cheapest of all things, and nobody uh, ought to have interest in actually forgiving. Because it, it seems like they're being totally taken advantage of in the name of some kind of grace that you're supposed to be giving to them. And it seems unacceptable. And yet, when I hear talk about forgiveness, mostly I do not hear talking about people talking about restitution. When I was a, a young child, my father used to tell me a story always when he found his way back to faith. And uh, he was away from the village where he grew up and which he left when he was 10 years, a uh, boy of 10 years of age. And when he uh, became what he would say, accepted Christ and became a Christian, he said he was 19 years of age. And he said, I have to go back to my village. Because when I was a 10-year-old kid, I was going through by orchards of my, my neighbors. I was stealing apples there or whatever other fruit w was there. That just was not right. So he went to each of the neighbors who remembered that he was take, took, took uh, stole fruit. And he said, you know, this is what happened to me. Uh, I have injured you. Uh, tell me what I can do to make it up. I'm happy to work. I'm happy to pay. Uh, this is what I'm required to do. And I think that's exactly what forgiveness must entail. 
It's other thing if the other person said, oh, you're just a sweet little kid, don't worry about it, right? <laughs> or if they say even some, somebody else says whom you're close, said, you know, there's, I understand there's no problem, right? But if there is no offer of restitution, it cannot be genuine acceptance of forgiveness. That's really helpful. And um, I appreciate that sort of there's, there needs to be response uh, to it. I wonder, can you talk more about um, that response, though? Where does it come from? So if the response is repentance and then there's restitution involved, is that the goal? Is that what we're headed toward? Uh, can you forgive to try to prompt someone to repent, right? Hey, can it ever be like that? Yeah. Uh, or or is, is, you know, is, recon- is restitution the goal to try to move it toward a place where then like things are righted and everything gets put in order again? What would you say is the final goal? I think the final goal is something like uh, like um, reconciliation. Something like there is nothing that mars relationship separates the relationship. Whatever we do after that, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, relationship would be completely and fully uh, restored. Often, it that there never was a relationship uh, in the case of injury. But, um, but, but the relationship itself has been there. There's nothing potentially marred that relationship. I think also I always liked what what Martin Luther said about uh, forgiveness. The goal of forgiveness is to return the perpetrator, wrongdoer, to the good from which they had fallen by doing the wrongdoing. So so it's not uh, simply uh, I, I want to get my my own uh, um, whatever satisfaction <laughs> in in the act. But, but, but rather the idea is the restoration of, of the good of both parties. Uh, and that presumes kind of the interest of my interest in other person actually receiving forgiveness. Now that that's now the difficulty on top of the difficulty that that's why Christian forgiveness can be so so hard. And in the book, I mentioned that Kierkegaard always thought that there are two victories necessary for forgiveness. One is victory over one's own self of just sense of ju- uh, uh, um, of of rage and demand for for justice. One does something that goes beyond, gives an act of grace. But the other one is to give it in such a way that the person receiving it can receive it, right? Uh, Sending that gift in such a way that that person will not feel unduly humiliated uh, by it so that you don't have this triumph of self-righteousness with regard to, to the other person. Because it's, I think it is the case. Uh, maybe some of you might disagree, but I think it's it's the case that it sometimes looks like it's easier to forgive than it is to properly repent. And it's not hard to, if that's the case, it's not hard to understand why. When I forgive, I'm actually on moral high ground. Somebody has injured me. And not only uh, is there's no burden of wrongdoing on me, but I am showing magnanimity. I am I am the great person in the relationship of forgiving, and therefore there is a kind of sense of power in the act of forgiveness, no matter how difficult it seems. On the other side, there is an act of uh, of certain kind of power, moral power. But repenter. I mean, there was an act of power when they transgressed against us. But when they repent, uh, that's a humiliating act. And it's a risky act also, because you don't know what's going to happen when you repent. And that's why we shy. Actually, in the Christian tradition, repentance was seen as the gift of God to us, ability to repent as a gift of God to, to us, because otherwise we don't want to see ourselves as who we truly are and admit to what we have done. I mean, 
Anytime you see that you can see that in the kind of public when people uh, people are being caught. Well, first they deny they've done anything, right? First is denial. Second is try to make it as uh, if they can get away with denying, then to minimize it as much as possible and blame on on whatever else it is, except not on on them, because nobody wants to have been a perpetrator. And yet repentance is an act which requires a, a, a kind of ability of the self to simply stay without is and must. I have done something wrong. Don't contextualize it. Although there may be a context, and maybe context is fine too. But ultimately, if you offload everything on something else, you haven't repented. You've just shown that there's no repentance to be had, to be made. Uh, therefore, repentance always required no ifs and buts. I have sinned. I have injured you. I've done you wrong. I ask for your forgiveness. That's a difficult act to do. And especially because, of course, that requires, that might have certain consequences. Namely, I might have to restore something that I've stolen from these, these people. And then we don't want to do that uh, either. And uh, uh, then there is no wonder that people don't want to forgive. If you don't want to repent, and if you don't want to restore, if I forgive, I, I look like a fool. I'm not a fool. And I'm required to do that by, uh, by, by God's word. But at the same time, that's how I would feel. And there's, I, I see no reason, or I see good reasons why people, when they act, they act just in that way, unless they feel deeply committed to a way of life uh, following Christ. Yeah, that it gets at very much what I see in my research on racial justice also is the, the conversations about forgiveness in those contexts where you're looking at like centuries of racial injustice or genocide of indigenous people or things like this that are just unfathomably uh, terrible, right? And then... Uh, and I wonder if you could talk more about the dynamics of forgiveness within unequal power relationships in society. Um, you talked about how, like, there is a certain power in being able to forgive. And I wonder if that is actually in some ways a beautiful thing, right? That when uh, people in a position of vulnerability who have been harmed have the capacity to forgive, like God gives us that capacity to forgive. Um, there's something wonderful in that. And yet I think often the the common conversation about this in in society is like, don't put that burden on people who have been harmed. Don't put that burden on people of color or uh, marginalized people who have been harmed. Don't expect them to forgive because that just sort of puts them in further vulnerability. Um, I think maybe part of the answer is what you're saying, that that uh, that it's not just you forgive and it's done, that it does acknowledge the wrongdoing, but um, do you want to say more about how this plays out in unequal power dynamics in, in the world? Well, uh, uh, if the person who have been, if those who have been wronged are in uh, um, kind of power dynamics, uh, a weaker party, then you can see that how forgiveness might be made particularly difficult for them if the stronger party continues to enjoy a certain kinds of benefits without willingness to actually do the work of repenting yeah. and restoring. Um, and even with that expectation, right, that like, well, just forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. Can't you just forgive so we can move on, right? That There's right. that coercion around it. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is kind of simply... Let the things stay as they are. Don't take don't take actually responsibility for the deed that you uh, have committed. The complicated issue, of course, is is that it's a collective, and it's not just collective uh, of the people living at the same time, but across the generations. Yeah. People have uh, died, and people well, have died. Yeah. And uh, certainly, I understand how it complicates complicates the situation, and I don't think I'm necessarily the person. Um, 
I put it that this is really beyond my pay grade to <laughs> for, to address that that issue, partly because uh, because beyond my pay pay grade, uh, simply because I, I I don't know, but partly also that I I'm I'm also a, a little bit outside on both sides of of things, and uh, though I'm a, a very proud American uh, citizen, I don't know American history well enough and all the implications, so I rather. Um, let other people uh, who know much better than I do speak on the, these issues. But I certainly understand how in many situations, I mean, you can you can say Rwanda, where racism is not really an issue, you will uh, know better because the two were... History, right? Yeah. <laughs> the two were defined by the French as, yeah. as kind of a different uh, or, or, or completely arbitrary ways. And so it... Uh, it, it, it um, again, there too is situation is very very complicated, but but often when you have imbalances or uh, imbalances of power and when injury has occurred, uh, I think it behooves the person in power to act in ways in that that elevates that mm. that lifts uh, the other person. Um, you know, I was I was struck recently. I was I was working on on um. Uh, on on the problem of striving for superiority, I won't go into this. Although I could give you about four hours of talk <laughs> about uh, uh, about this, because I've just gotten off of this. That'll uh, be from two o'clock until five o'clock. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but but I was I was struck uh, with Apostle Paul's idea of the church and how the body, social body, uh, works. And I don't know if you recall that uh, he he has uh, he has at one point in in First Corinthians twelve he he says well you, you know if uh, you you cannot uh, um, so I think he says uh, an eye uh, cannot say I don't need the rest of the body or some other weaker member can also say. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't need, uh, or can tell to the weaker body. Oh, you, you, you can just go, um, because I don't need you, right? Everybody needs everybody. Is one of the claims he he makes, and then he comes uh, to the point where he says, "Well, th- there are these members that seem less on seem mm-hmm. less honorable, that are kind of on the lower." totem level. <laughs> uh, they have lower status, to use more technical uh, terminology. And then uh, he says, what do we do with those members? We give them more honor so that they would be the same care would be for everyone and the level of honor would be equalized. Now that's an absolutely stunning idea. Those who are social categories deem to be less honorable. He doesn't accept them as less honorable. Hmm. He says that's what we tend to think. But actually, there are no less or more honorable members in Christ's body, in the social body. But those who are deemed the such, we bestow on them greater honor so that there would be equality of honor. I think that is a, a very challenging, but I think very good way to think of our relations with one another. If we didn't do something like that in family, how would our families look? I think closer we are to one another, the more beautiful relationship we have, the more we want to do that for one another. Couples who don't do it mm. are, live under strain. Families that don't do it, the siblings live under strain. And so there is a kind of sense of how a community should be and live so as to correspond to Christ's vision. Last comment on this which is, I, th- I th- think, very, very radical. Apostle Paul says in Philippians, in humility, hold each other, or hold the other, he means mutually, 
as more important than yourself. Mutual relationship of holding each other more important than oneself, and then gives you example of Christ, who was equal with God, but did not grasp, hold graspingly onto that, but honored even the most despised of all despised slaves to the degree that he gave his life for that slave or that seemingly insignificant member uh, as much as for anybody else, and certainly more than his own life. That's Christian faith. That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's the heart of forgiveness. That's the heart of generosity of the Christian faith. That's why it's so, to me, it's so radical and so absolutely beautiful and so incredibly hard. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Amen. Yes. Uh, We're going to move toward questions in just a minute, but let me ask one more question first that really ties into that very much. Uh, Thinking about, you know, we can talk about forgiveness sometimes in these abstract senses of like forgiving terrible, awful things that are done. Uh, But one thing I love about how you write about this, too, is that it's also just an everyday practice. It's messy. It's complicated, but it's part of all of our lives all the time. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking about, you know, what brings people to this room today? And I imagine for some of us, uh, we might want to forgive, but just feel like, how do you even begin? How do you actually do that and carry it out? Um, And you offer, I thought, one of the most beautiful parts in the book for me was just this offhand sentence that you gave in the context of um, a woman trying to forgive something really, like, I think by most standards, truly horrendous. It was a Bosnian uh, woman who was a Muslim woman um, who had been abused uh, by neighbors and colleagues and um, in the context of war. And uh, she actually said uh, she named her son Jihad. She named her son War. And she said, I can't forgive. I don't know how to forgive. And you wrote this response to someone in that situation. And I'm just going to read it. You said, before anything else, she needs Christ to cradle her, to nurse her with the milk of divine love, to hold her in his arms like an inestimable, inestimable gem, to sing her songs of gentle care and firm protection, and to restore her to herself as a beloved and treasured being. And I'm wondering if you have any words for people who are just struggling to even know how to begin forgive. Yeah, we have been, when uh, this is an extreme example of the self by the suffering endured. Um, that something like forgiveness becomes unthinkable. You don't know where to find resources for it. It's almost like you're trying to plant a, a plant on the on the concrete. Mm. Shiny, what do those those high grade concrete that you have in these modern uh, houses try plant something on it. Nothing comes of that. Uh, and that's why I think that before anything else a sense of being loved by God, sense of being secure, sense of possibility, sense of opening oneself, being able to open oneself up without fear of danger. That's often condition of possibility of something like forgiveness. And it seems to me that forgiveness either happens willingly or it really does not truly happen. Right. And that's why I think that although we as Christians are commanded to forgive, we also have to be given the capacities to forgive. And my sense is um, that that we need to certainly not wag our finger at somebody who isn't forgiving, Mm. but to have patience and be on the side of this um, 
gentleness of God that brings us into back to ourselves so that being at one with ourselves, we can start acting as those created in the image of Christ. I often think that, um, especially in the kind of Western forms of Christianity, um, we, we have we have lost the sense that one gets, for instance, when you read Dostoevsky uh, or some other uh, Eastern writers, uh, Father Zosima in Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers K, uh, of of sin as a form of tragic captivity, so that there there is kind of a mourning of for the soul that's captive by it, rather than kind of bearing on and condemning as though that would somehow resolve the situation, as though uh, somehow commands resolve the problem of sin. Apostle Paul will, will write, uh, you know, command came and sin came alive. <laughs> right? That's the Romans 7. is it, a very, very interesting uh, case of the, of the dialectic of command and, and, and sin or, or some kind of a stern discipline we, as if that's how human plans are able to, uh, to grow. I think we delude ourselves. We get reactions, we get control, but we don't get actually the beauty of the soul that can result in forgiveness. And so uh, a sense of learning that like the, this woman is a fantastic example, right, of, of how tragically I mean, you can condemn her for, for giving her son's name, uh, the name to her son, Jihad. But what have you done when you condemned her for that? Nothing. She needs to be redeemed, not condemned. Even though we all know that it's a wrong thing that she has done, she needs forgiveness so as to be able to learn how to forgive. She needs cradling and sustenance in order to be able to live the kind of life Christ calls us all into. I want to see the church live that all out, right? Uh, let's... To see myself, oh God, help me. Right, yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.